So what day of the fucking quarantine is it? Oh, yeah, I don't know. I'm not really keeping track. Have you started, like, doing a diary of some sort? I'm, I want to start journaling more. Yeah. I think that would be helpful because, I mean... What else is there to do? Because <laughs> who knows? Like, if we do that every day, we might have, like, a new classic Journal of the Plague Year Part 2. Mm. Are you that interesting? Is it that? Are you that interesting to make staying within the same four walls interesting? Well, I hadn't really thought of it until now. Probably not. <laughs> Um, how are you feeling, Demir? Like, t- tell me, um, well, actually, I don't, whatever. I don't really care. <laughs> I mean, we're on group chats all the time. You know how I feel. I don't know. You know, the, the most interesting thing about the plague years is, um, is I, I feel like it's been the, the, the kind of, um, uh, the testiness on among friends. That's the thing I've noticed the most, perhaps. I feel like people are really on edge. It's like it's getting to them. It's I, conversations just sort of blow up in ways that I don't particularly expect sometimes, though I feel it. I feel the tension in every conversation. Like, so I'm not like really surprised when it blows up, but I'm like, whoa, it blew up when That's it happens. That's actually really interesting. I don't know who I was telling the other day, maybe my parents, um, that that I, I am feeling that, um, oh, actually, I think it might have been my... It might have been my therapist. Uh huh. <laughs> well, we'll talk about that. How's therapy in the age of plague? Can you are you are you tele are you oh, teletherapying? Man. That's funny. Yeah, yeah. Video conferencing. I guess everything's video conferencing now. And um, yeah, but I am sensing that there there is a bit of a divide on the group chats that I'm on. That you know, because I mean, these are matters of life and death at some level. And people will take things more personally. And also there's a kind of, I don't want to call it virtue signaling because that actually diminishes it. I think it's totally legitimate. But I think people have different conceptions of what's appropriate to do or not to do socially. And if you disagree with them, if I disagree or they disagree with me, whatever it might be, there's there's a personal tinge to that because it means that we might be threatening public safety the collective. or the collective. Yeah. yeah. So what I do as an individual is now a matter of public concern. How so spoken like an American. Look at that. Like <laughs> as an individual there, it turns out there's a society who would have thought, who would have right? thought just so I, I was, I just tweeted randomly. I didn't even think that this would be even vaguely controversial. I tweeted a picture of myself working on my laptop last night, smoking shisha. Saw that. And then I mean, luckily it wasn't most people, but there there were a few tweeps who were like freaking out. Like, how can you actually set this example as a as a public figure? You're encouraging people to smoke, and we know oh. about. And I'm like, wow, I hadn't even thought of that. I, well, first I, of all, I, I didn't follow your tweet, so I just hadn't thought of it until you just said yeah, it. Yeah, because so I was like, listen, I'm doing it in my own home. I wouldn't recommend people to smoke shisha elsewhere if they don't know where the shisha is coming from or whatever it just like people that was an example of what you're saying people are on edge and and um i think all of us are on edge i'm on edge so i mean this applies much more to you than me uh but do you feel uh as a public figure more responsibility to not say things uh, in public (laughs) and things like that I should have been as a public figure in scare quotes. <laughs> no, but you are. I mean, you have, what, 160 million Twitter <laughs> followers? That's pretty public. Like half of America follows you. Oh, wow. No, but seriously, um, I, I, it's a serious question. Do you, do you find, do you find that, that there's, um, uh, do you, do you feel like some sort of extra responsibility about it? Like, do you remember there was a, there was a, there was actually a, I think the CDC, yeah, the CDC had some, this was maybe about like a week and a half ago in, uh, said like, and it wasn't like two public intellectuals, but it might as well have been. It said like, don't use words like the plague because it freaks people oh, out. Oh, really? I didn't see that. Oh, okay. yeah. Yeah. They were like, yeah, don't, don't talk about it with the P word. Okay. So. <laughs> and, and, and it's, and I mean, I still to this day, I don't really abide by that. But again, I don't have 150 million Twitter followers. So I don't, I don't, I don't know. Do you, do you have a certain kind Look, of like I, I'm extra careful, weight? I am careful about anything I say regarding coronavirus because. I don't want anyone to model how they approach it after me. I make my own decisions as an individual 
and I'm responsible for myself. I don't want, I don't think that I want people to be reading my Twitter feed. And if I'm saying, oh, um, the social distancing measures in place in DC are over the top, you know, we shouldn't, we should be more free in our movements. I don't want to get into that because God forbid, I can't imagine who these odd, these odd individuals are who would be following my Twitter feed and being like, oh, I'm going to ignore the CDC. and Instead, I will follow the great expert Shadi Hamid. Right. But, you know, you don't want to take chances because people who like like me or friends of mine who follow me and care about what I say or whatever, you know, so I, I do I do take that, you know, somewhat seriously. And I, I have tried to avoid tweeting about things I'm not an expert on. So I'm not going to make judgments about, um, you know, ep- ep- whatever What's that word? Epi- Epidemiological? Epi- whatever. That one. Epi- yeah. <laughs> Epidemiology, I yeah, think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I, I am, comfort- you know, but one thing I do want to write, and I'm working on an article now that I shared some sneak peek paragraphs with you, Demir, on political implications of coronavirus and how that affects right-wing populism, left-wing populism. So the things that we normally talk about and normally write about Obviously, coronavirus is relevant in that respect. I I I I look forward to talking about it because it's um it's a tough one. I mean, I I feel like that there's there's sort of two two strands appearing out of this. It still hasn't um I think uh, gelled in as a sort of conventional wisdom which way it's going to go. But it's it's uh yeah. I mean, why don't you why don't you walk through some of your your sort of thoughts as you're you know in the midst of writing this. And we'll try and unpack it, but it, it seems to me that that uh, yeah, it's it's a real moment of trying to wrap our heads around exactly what the implications are of this. Yeah, so I'm I'm torn, and that's why that's part of the reason I want to write this article because it's a way for me to kind of think through these competing interpretations. And we don't really have anything to go on because people can talk about previous academic, um, <laughs> previous <laughs> academics, yeah. previous epidemics or pandemics. Similar, similar, almost synonymous. <laughs> almost. You know, so it's the Spanish flu of 1918 or, I mean, that's not comparable because first of all, the death toll and the, and the number of cases was much higher than anything we're likely to have um, in the coming year. So it's hard. We're talking about apples and oranges here, but you know, um, so this is this is really new. It's certainly there's nothing comparable in our own lifetimes. So a lot of this has to do with how we as individuals, what our tendencies are in times of crisis. So that's one thing that I want to look into a little bit more is how do individuals respond to inflection points or these exogenous shocks. I mean, 9-11 maybe is vaguely comparable, at least from a a psychological standpoint, at least for some people who were very affected by it, maybe, if you were in New York, for example. But that would have only been for a certain period of time. I I think the lasting effects of this are going to be much more consequential because of the economic devastation that will take, I think, quite a bit longer to recover from. I mean, if we're talking about five to 10% GDP contraction in, in the second quarter. I mean, that's unprecedented in our, in our lifetimes. Well, right. So, so um, let's just talk about the, the, the sort of uh, reactions and sort of on the, the moral sphere. Uh, I think you tweeted today. Uh, you did right the, the, the David Brooks column, the recent David Brooks column about yeah, how like pandemics were... make us worse or yeah. pandemics kill our compassion too. Right. And you know what that happened in previous pandemics. Fine. But, you know, we're in a different era where we're more connected. We know we know through Twitter how other people are experiencing this. We're also more democratic as countries and as nations. Um, you know, certainly the U.S. is more democratic um, than it was in 1918. But also um, Europe, um, there, there are greater, the welfare state is stronger. So in that sense... Citizens are tied to each other, even if they don't want to be tied to each other, because if the welfare state and the healthcare system collapse under the strain 
of coronavirus that will affect every single citizen in a way it wouldn't have in quite this, at least in quite the same way, um, nearly a century ago. So I think that um, our societies have changed um, in really fundamental ways. Um, so, so, right? Yeah. I mean, well, so look, you know, I mean, what struck me about that David Brooks column is, and what strikes me about you just talking about it this way as well is that, uh, um, well, on the David Brooks thing, on the one hand, there's a kind of, I don't know, that's going to sound harsher than I intended, but like a kind of maybe, well, no, it's not fair to call it moral preening on David Brooks's part, but I would say that there's something, there's something about this idea that, um, uh, the pandemic strips us of a kind of moral goodness that other crises have allowed sort of to shine through. Whereas to me, I don't know, there's something more honest about the plague. It, it reduces us to our sort of least socialized, most sort of authentically human beast-like characteristic, if that makes any it sense. It does, but is that really who we are? So you're saying it strips us down to our essence. Yeah. Is that our essence? Well, I, I guess what I'm struck with what you're saying is that the, the, this this concept of 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 progress. I mean, I've, I always look at things like the social welfare state and, and the European, all these layerings of sort of civilizations, really thin layers on top of something that actually come off pretty easily. You know, I, again, maybe, maybe it's for my own sort of, but that is basically how I approach the world is that we have a very thin veneer on everything. Yeah. But when you put humans in unnatural settings, so let's say you put humans in quarantine or you put them in something close to total isolation for two months how humans behave as a result of that is not, in my view, their natural essence, because we were not made or created or whatever to be in isolation. So that's going to have a distorting effect on the human spirit, on how we, on 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 our own interactions with the things that we care about. So I, no. I guess I just want to, I want to call into question this idea of a pandemic stripping us down to our authentic selves. I think we're more authentic when there aren't pandemics. No, no. That, okay. Does maybe, make- maybe it totally makes sense. Maybe what I'm trying to get at though, it's, it's not that it's, it's maybe authentic's the wrong word. I would say just constant that, that it, it brings us back to something that shouldn't be surprising to anyone. And when David Brooks cites the kind of literature, the flowering of sort of sentiment, sentimental literature outside of other sort of catastrophes, and contrasts it with sort of the mute silence of of something that came after the the Spanish flu. Though even I think he there is being a little melodramatic because there's there's several theories of why there wasn't that much literature about it at the time. Not that we were all just made into beasts, but um, so we should just say for for people who haven't read that that column. So David Brooks is basically saying that more than six hundred fifty thousand people were killed, uh, much more than. Um, I guess either of the two world wars, at least American citizens. Um, and, um, but despite that, there hasn't been any kind of artistic creation dealing with the legacy or the aftermath of the death that resulted from the Spanish flu. So it's an interesting, he, and he poses this question as a puzzle. Why hasn't there been more um, reckoning with, with that moment in American history, considering the death toll? Yeah. And how much it affected families all across the country. Yeah, right. And so it's 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 sort of again, I, I, I don't really want to go into these things too deeply because I haven't really worked it out that much. But what struck me in that column is that um and what struck me in what you're saying right now as well is that like, well, you know, uh you're, you're ascribing a lot of, of, of sort of weighty change to how societies have developed. And uh, it seems like you're, you're somewhat hopeful that, you know, we won't be as easily stripped down to our sort of barbarous essence anymore. Um, that these bonds that we've created, like, I don't know, more democratic societies and, and things like that, that these are, are fundamentally have somehow, you know, reshaped us as human beings. I, I, I don't see that. I mean, I see, again... Honesty, authenticity, those are not the right words. It's not what I'm looking for. I don't want to even impart some sort of virtue to this sort of stripping away of society. It's a, it's a horrible thing. I just see it as 
all of this as I'm watching it, it just sort of seems uh, that that if not truths, certain sort of verities that are forgotten by people who truly believe in progress are revealed. That's all I mean. Certain sort of essential truths about human nature are being revealed as such this as? stuff goes back. Well, such as, you know, uh, this kind of uh, uh, selfishness and fear and how that motivates human behavior. That those to me end up being, I think, if you're not taking those two into account and not taking, you know, mitigating factors that alleviate selfishness and fear, uh, you know, and and are appealing to some sort of concepts of virtue uh, that exist outside of society, you're, you're, you're missing it. You're completely missing it. Now, again, we, we, I'm sure we can get into a really deep one here about, you know, uh, religion and transcendence and, and the human spirit. But I mean, as you know, I'm not, I'm neither <laughs> religious nor, nor a particularly transcendent person. So that, that, that's why as all of this is, is happening, um, okay, well, to me, so I, I mean, yeah. it, it's, it's, it's why, as I'm watching all of this happen, I'm, 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 while shaken to the core at how quickly it's happening and how everything seems to be unraveling, at the same time, I feel like it's revealing something that far too many people ha- just have written off like we've transcended this, like we are, that's it. Don't get me wrong. The selfishness and the fear are very real. I mean, we, I think what, what we share is that we both have a darker view of human nature. Yeah. And part of that has to do with... um are countries of, I don't know, I wouldn't call them origin, I sure. mean, but oh, my original origin, origin or yeah. whatever. You know, well, you, my origin, certainly. You, Croatia, yeah. um, me, Egypt, because because we, because we at least our parents, <laughs> I'm born here, just FYI to people. I'm not saying like, uh, you know, uh, yeah, America's my country, but Egypt plays an important role and how I understand the world because right. uh, I've lived there. I've seen what I saw, what happened there. And that has an effect that you can't ever truly let go of. And um, we're shaped by those experiences. And I think um, Egypt isn't necessarily a conflict zone or it hasn't been in a way that Croatia or say Bosnia or Kosovo. And we have our, our Bosnian Kosovo friends who I think have a different reaction to coronavirus because for them walking into the street there was a risk of dying if you walked into the street um the death was always there it was never particularly far away um and and that you could never you could never completely transcend that experience right right um so i guess i would say look i mean i think that my sense is that there's sort of a bell curve going on here that if you have very high, high death tolls, that's when you would see the every man or woman for themselves kind of dynamic, because that would propel us into a different kind of situation where it really was a question of surviving day to day and people would have to do things that they wouldn't want to tell their children afterwards, you know? And we know about those kinds of situations where people have to make very difficult decisions in war zones um, that that really challenge, you know, conceptions of moral philosophy. So if, if, God forbid, we got to that point here where hundreds of thousands of people were dying and death was there and proximate, in a way it isn't quite yet, then that would be a test, and I don't want to. I don't want to know what the answers to that question are. No, of course. But um, but if hopefully we can, um, we don't reach those worst case scenarios, and we're able to flatten the curve, so to speak, then then that's a different kind of situation that falls short of the kind of war zone kind of you know. So, uh, but, but before, before we, because yeah. I, I know, I know, you know, I do want to get to where you're headed with this, with the sort of the political implications on, but we before we get there, I do want to just maybe unpack and get your thoughts on this. Cause it, the part that, you know, I have been again <laughs> running joke on this podcast about avoiding Twitter, but I really have been avoiding Twitter as much as possible because it's, it's, oh yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's horrible. I- it, it, it really, it's just, it's, it's, it's hard, hard. It's yeah. very hard. And it, 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 it warps you. I feel like I, I, my pulse goes up. It's, yeah. it's awful. Um, 
but I pop on once, not every day, maybe every other day to just point out, you know, and it's partly to get a reaction because I know it'll get a strong reaction, but to point out that this is first and foremost an economic story. Um, and, you know, obviously this is a human humanitarian and a human catastrophe. And so it is on the surface somewhat insensitive when I say that on Twitter, but it's Twitter. So you can say it briefly and then get a rise out of people. The point is though, it is to me, actually, I, I don't, I, I'm not saying it purely to be a troll to me. Again, getting back to this. Yes, you're right. Hopefully, perhaps even likely, we won't get to the mass catastrophe sort of thing. But what's striking to me, and this is going back to this sort of stripping away things, um, what seems to me what's happening, it's that it, there's a kind of perfect storm seems to be happening right now. The, the extent to which we've shut down everything, and not just in Washington or in Washington and San Francisco or in Washington and San Francisco and New York, but across Europe. Europe is shut down. The United States will probably be somewhat shut down, if not as wholly shut down as Europe within two weeks, let's say, as this thing builds momentum, if it keeps building momentum as it seems to be. This is beyond unprecedented. I don't think, I think everyone who's spending so much time trying to figure out how many people will die, they're missing that nothing has ever happened quite like this before. Wars happen that destroy productivity, but wars also require massive production and, you know, compensating things. We're shutting down everything in a way that's just never been tried before. And the consequences of this, again, the reason why I say it's such, it is the biggest economic story, because the, the, to me, we're talking about shutting down and tearing apart the very fabric of society in a way that's never been done before. Yeah, but that's not an economic story to me. When you talk about the fabric of society, what I'm thinking is that, look— but I, you, Yeah, go yeah. on. Please. No, I saw, yeah, I mean, look, I, I think our econ the underlying fundamentals of our economy are strong enough. They'll rebound, maybe not as soon as we would like, but at some point, the social fabric and how individuals— contend with isolation, with being deprived of the human touch, if we if we want to, to be somewhat sentimental about it, or grandiose. But I mean, some people will be deprived of the human touch for, you know, somewhat long periods, I suppose. And, um, or just being around their friends or being, uh, you know, being in a social setting where they feel comfortable and reassured. So, I mean, I worry about what that does to people over time, because if we're talking about a lockdown that lasts four months, six months, and God forbid, and I don't even want to say this, but I did read that Washington Post article that we shared on a group chat, that this, if we're flattening the curve, um, that doesn't mean, like, there will still be cases at to some extent possibly for 12, uh, 12 to 18 months from now. Right. There'll be a dip in the summer, but then there could be, um, there could be um, a re- resurgence, a, yeah. a resurgence of cases starting in the, the winter again. So if we're talking about having some degree of on and off social lockdown for a year as, as, a, as a kind of worst case scenario, that's going to really fuck with people. I, I agree. I, I guess I don't that, even know if we can do it. I don't know. If, is that even plausible? That would be an an unprecedented social experiment. I don't think we're even capable of doing that. My my main point is that that uh, that to me is just seems like a very small part of a much bigger story, which is that you know the the real nightmare scenario is that okay, sure, Trump announced however many uh, hundreds of billions of dollars of support right now. I would guess this is the first of many, and they'll all fail in the next two months. They'll all fail to buoy the markets and to basically uh, save most of the businesses that still exist and are operating on a cash flow sort of basis. And these are not just small businesses. I mean, the entire tourism industry, hotels, all of this. But you know, yeah. and 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 you know, when people say to me, and you're hardly the only person to say, "Well, the fundamentals are sound and will rebound," I, it's it's thinking of, it's not thinking, I think, enough of this exogenous shock as 
maybe the equivalent of a life-threatening virus, if one thinks of the economy as some kind of living organism, that basically, yeah, sure, you were healthy yesterday, but now you have coronavirus and you're going to die. You know, like, that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about like a systemic sickening. Again, it's not clear to me that it's necessarily going to happen like this. There are many scenarios that, you know, okay, well, the governments will do whatever it takes and et cetera, et cetera. But I think there's a much larger than small uh, chance that we're headed into territory that is completely unknown at this point. And, you know, the reason I wanted to throw this in, because I do want to talk about the political stuff, and I know you're coming at it from the sort of individual psychological level, but I don't want to lose this systemic element of what politics will look like after, because I do think that um, the the ways that sort of we're going to end up talking about this uh, has to take both of those into account. And I think that the way it's going to work out, it's going to be how those interact. It's a very complicated question because political psychology and the psychology of individuals and all the rest of that will be shaped by how this system evolves. But as I look at it right now, if these subsequent um, patches to an economy that's been actually turned off uh, keep failing to you know, keep it on the most bare life support, which is what's going to be required for the next X months as we wait for the, the curve to be flattened. Um, we, uh, all sorts of things are going to change, you know, from employment to uh, citizens' relationship to the state that is handing out money to keep them afloat, uh, to just a sense of growing panic as all the sort of other elements of society that aren't just families and friends and the rest of it just wither and die. I think you're looking at potentially massive social unrest uh, if this gets out of hand. I don't know. These are my nightmare scenarios. They're not, they're not growing death tolls. Death tolls are, are an element of this, but they're almost scenery to this bigger like societal disease that I'm really concerned is coming along. Oh boy. Demir. Oh God, I can't do this. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God! You just look. It's what we're all feeling. It's a sense of dread, um, this sense of foreboding that things will never be the same again. I don't. I don't want to. I don't want to overdo it. I don't want to be dramatic. Yeah, it's early on. It is. But I. I can't even describe, and it's what everyone who's listening to this podcast, unless you. Um, happen to live in, I don't know, whatever the countries are that haven't had coronavirus. I don't know, the Maldives. No, the Maldives probably has a couple cases. Um, the Seychelles, I don't know. Yeah. Um, we'll put it in the show notes. We'll Google it afterwards. <laughs> we'll Google. But, like, I think we're all feeling it. And that, um, anyway, but here's what I'll say. Here, let me try to let, let me try to get back on track and to resist the temptation to fall into utter despair. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> I'll pull you back once you've climbed pull me that back again. Here. Go on. And I, honestly, the one thing that I've realized, and I told you guys this, I think when we were having dinner last Thursday at Astoria, <laughs> not to like, <laughs> not to name check DC restaurants, but hey, they need all the support. The yeah, story is terrific. Well, I think it's, it's must, must one be of the one of the really good. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe they're doing carry out. In yeah, any case, yeah. But look, I told you guys, like I told I told you and you and Annie that, um, like, like there's something there's something very like you realize there's something very special about those close friendships because if we're only going to be if we're only going to be hanging out with like three to five people, because and maybe that will even stop if there's full lockdown. But like, if I have a couple of you guys over at my place, or we come over to your place, and we should say just so people are aware that uh, me and Demir are actually doing this in real space in his in his living room, um, and that might change actually. It may, it, it may. may. Yeah. But um, if there's a full on lockdown, I mean, there's about like, well, I don't know, what, like eight to 10 feet between me and you. So we're observing social didn't, distancing didn't measures. Didn't shake hands. <laughs> didn't shake hands. Didn't even make, make eye contact when we walked <laughs> no in. No eye contact. <laughs> 
but it it really does. And then we, you know, um, you know, seeing you guys over the weekend and just in general, it it was there was something like very powerful and and meaningful, and it just I don't like certain things matter more now, and this gets to my bigger point. Yeah, that I think is worth emphasizing here. And I don't know about the economy. I'm not an expert. Who knows what'll happen? Even experts don't know. No, they don't. Economists tend, you know, economists do have a record of getting things wrong before things go wrong. So, hey, whatever. I just want to throw in because our friend Ben Haddad said this right after I think Trump was elected. It says, you know, the role of pundits is to explain everything that's happened up to that point. (laughs) And that's what we're good at is like, well, obviously we're here and here's 50 reasons why we got here. The most successful exactly. pundits do that in a way that suggests a kind of forward-leaning wisdom, but that's <laughs> exactly. it's it's just it's just sleight of hand. But anyway, go on. Yeah. So what I'm trying to tease out in this piece that I'm working on is I'm already shifting in my political priorities. I'm changing, and now I'm just one individual, and I'm I'm somewhat idiosyncratic in how I respond to things. So I don't want to presume that. There are millions of people who feel the way that I do, but it's just my experience and what I feel. I want, I've never longed for normalcy as much as I do today. Mm. And I'll probably long for it more in the coming days and weeks and months. And that's different because as recently, and I'm, this doesn't mean that I'm changed my my fundamental ideological convictions are still there. My starting premises are still there. But it's just to say that my priorities are changing, at least for the short term, at least for now, while we're facing this unprecedented crisis. I don't want, I don't want political revolution, or maybe I do, but I just don't have the stomach for, I don't have the energy to think about structure deep structural reform and you know and you know any people who have followed the podcast or read my recent work know that i very much my theory of the case before coronavirus was that um we needed to address the deeper structural problems in our country and trump is a symptom and not a cause and he is a symptom of these deeper problems with the status quo. And that's why we can't go back to normal. We can't go to the status quo ante. We can't go to the pre-Trump days and pretend that Trump was merely an aberration. That's what I said. And that's sort of what I still think in some broader sense. But now all I want, I look, I'm fine with suspending the political revolution that's not the number one thing for me right now, which is interesting because some people have responded rather differently than I have to this crisis. And they're saying this shows that we need a political, social and economic revolution, that we need to have um, the Bernie agenda in all of its glory. We need to have Medicare for all. We need to be radical. We need to see opportunity opportunity and crisis or whatever it might be. And I don't know, does that mean that they are different than I am in how they respond to crisis? Because all I want is to go back to the way things were a month ago. And I don't need to have, or maybe that could be speaking from a position of privilege, but um, obviously like I, I, you know, I am covered, I, I have health insurance. So there, there's also, um, and a stratification issue there. And there will be people who will see that as a revolutionary demand that has to be had like now. Okay. You know, those are all understandable caveats, but just speaking as someone who's experiencing this crisis um, and I just want to be normal. I want to go out. Like I, I don't, I don't want to make it like, it's not about, I want to go out with my friends. I want to go out to a restaurant and not feel like the world is ending. I want to be able to visit my parents and go to Pennsylvania in a couple of weeks, which was normally what we would do because I haven't seen them in about a month. 
Um, and we try to see each other like every, you know, every six weeks or so, give or take. Either they come here or I go there. Um, I, that's, those are the most important things to me. Um, my friends, my family, I, I also don't want to work from home. And just to kind of on a lighter note, you know, just to kind of, you know, uh, light, lighten the mood a little bit. I don't think that working from home is particularly great. I think it's a productivity suck. I think no one, anyone who claims that they're more productive working from home is lying. Hmm. And I challenge them to a duel. <laughs> well, maybe we'll have more duels now. Maybe the, the social <laughs> the social stigma about dueling will be lifted in the laws. Well, no, but let me ask you a little bit about that. Um, you, uh, how how does this translate this, thirst for normalcy uh, into politics because um, in a way, as I'm hearing you speak right now, uh, I hear exactly the kind of um, complaint that, uh, well, you know, dictatorships have always tapped into in the sense of the world's crazy um, and I speak to you, uh, and I am going to protect you and I am going to restore things to the way, well, maybe they were, if it's a sentimental kind of thing, but maybe, uh, that mutates over time to the way they, sh- things should be. I mean, this is the most fertile ground for that. I mean, on the one hand, I imagine you're just saying you're no longer, uh, would you no longer be that conflicted if Biden won and replace the populist Trump and you have a sense of going back to the status quo ante. So that's my one question first. How do you grapple with that and have you thought through that? The other uh, question I have um, – uh, well, no, go ahead and do this one and then we'll, oh, yeah, we'll sure. get it. Okay, look. So Biden winning, some I preferred. Uh, he wasn't my preferred candidate, obviously. Um, not thrilled about his candidacy. I think he's – I think he's – He's probably not a particularly strong candidate, but he, I think he's he's not going to be a strong president. So if he wins, if he manages to beat Trump, I think he'll be a caretaker president who won't do much and won't really, you know, he'll just be a status a sort of like, hey, let's let's kind of be normal or let's try to be normal, whatever. So those are my critiques of um, Biden, but you know he's not a deal breaker in the sense I would still vote for him if it if if he's a nominee. So he's still within the context of democracy. Where what you're saying is that authoritarians make arguments about chaos and conflict, and that hey, you know life is the way it is. So you got to buckle down and accept a bad situation and protection and security and all that. But I don't buy that because. And again, I'm not saying that you're going to get, you know, Trump making the case that vote for me and I'll abolish Congress. That's not how it goes. Right. Look, or not even yeah. Trump, but like any, and let's just, you know, any sort of budding authoritarian leader, uh, you know, leverages this feeling, this expression. Right, this, but that's very different because I'm leveraging it for just to say that I want to go back to normalcy. That's still within the context of democratic competition. It's still, I mean, Biden is not somehow a less democratic option if people vote for him than anyone else, right? No, certainly not. So, so in that, you know, and I think we've seen that authoritarian regimes aren't necessarily better at dealing with coronavirus. And, you know, this is where I do have a, a little bit, and I'll, you know, I'll be straight up about this. I am, I do have a bit of anger, if not more than a bit of anger towards the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese regime because, not because they, you know, for the simple reason, and we know this and it's documented, that they suppressed information about the virus in the critical early days and weeks. And that allowed it to spread at least somewhat undetected. And they they suppressed and detained and disappeared or whatever it might be, citizens and doctors who were speaking out and saying, Something is fundamentally wrong here, and the Chinese regime is not telling us that this is spreading. So this is, I mean, if we look at the core of it, we're talking about an authoritarian regime that is somewhat responsible, not through not through malicious intent or whatever it might be, just, well, it's malicious intent in that 
they were they were suppressing bad information and that's what and they do it through force and coercion and through um arresting people and people can say whatever they want about Trump suppressing information or not coming to terms with the reality of of the, the gravity of the situation but no one was disappeared for saying that Trump was understating the severity of what was to come and this is why democracies at some basic fundamental level will always be prefer- preferable because I want to know what's happening in my country. I don't want to be in the dark. And so anyone who's drawing a moral equivalency between Trump and the Chinese regime, I'm sorry. Like at, at some level, I'm not going to be okay with illegitimate arguments that are just silly and tendentious. And look, I mean, the stakes, the stakes are high. And I'm going to be – and I'm, so I'm not going to let people get away with arguments like that. Now, again, to clear the air. No, I, no, it's I, not I, you. No, 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 I know, I know, I know, I know, no, no, I know, I know, I know, I know. But let me just I know let, you don't believe this. I, what, I, I don't believe it, no. But, but the reason I asked the question, and I want to just sort of pull you back to that, because I think it's, it's not – my question was certainly not, do you, do you all of a sudden prefer authoritarianism more? That wasn't the question, just to be perfectly clear. The question, the question was, was as, you, as I was listening to you speak, uh, and I'm wondering as you hear yourself speak in these terms about this, this desire for normalcy, is there anything in that rhetoric that, not for you, but that if extrapolated from you to, well, let's say everyone, that gives you pause about where we're headed politically? Not and and what I'm what I'm what I'm asking you is like and this is why I brought up Biden. Do you think that the natural desire that if you take everything you just described and extrapolate it to everyone is to a centrist Democrat, or does this put the society as a whole on a slippery path to potentially something else? And I'm not saying that you get you elect someone on those lines, but I think you 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 have an openness, a general openness towards these sorts of things. So everything that people may have been saying about Trump being on a slippery slope and however, uh, however overstated and uh, that may have been over the last three years, you do have a guy who does have these sorts of tendencies. Um, and now you have a situation where people are like, oh God, you know, daddy make it better. Right. And, and it's, it's that kind of, that, that kind of, set of impulses that that gave me pause uh listening to you again not saying that 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 you're abandoning democracy not that any of us are abandoning <laughs> democracy but that's not how it happens presumably no one willingly does that oh that's not my okay uh, look it's a legitimate concern it's not my number one concern right now this kind of slippery slippery slope towards authoritarianism it may be in the like i i do worry about delaying the presidential election as um, there's some debate about who, wait, it was, uh, was it you or Ani who brought this up over dinner last week? I don't remember, but it was one Someone, of us. Yeah. What have you brought? Yeah. And I was like, Hey, shit. Yeah. Delaying the election. But you know, at some, at some point, if, if we don't have the, the, the mechanisms to vote um, by like, I don't know, technology or computers or whatever. Sure which we probably won't. <laughs> right. Then hey, that's a legitimate question. Like if if cuz there's a legitimacy question either way. If you hold the election on the day and there's a virus that is killing people um in real time, then you have a legitimacy question that some people will not go out will not go out and cast their ballot because they're afraid. And that could distort the normal or the natural, right? I, those all those categories are absurd, though. Yeah, yeah, it is absurd. But also, if you, um, but then if you if you delay the vote until some later point, then you're not gonna. Then that raises legitimacy questions too. So either way, there's going to be a question um, that whoever wins didn't win didn't win rightly or correctly or whatever, or bigly or whatever. You, you notice Trump in like the last two pressers has been, whenever they've asked him about it, he's been very keen. They ask him about primaries getting moved and votes being canceled. He's like, very bad, bad. I don't like this. That's so, interesting. Yeah. It's happened twice now, uh, yeah. at least twice that I've noticed might've been more. 
But that's just an interesting little side note to that. But yeah, yeah go on. But look on the broader point, though. Um, I don't know. Um, well, okay. Let me let me ask a slightly different question then. Maybe no, this okay, will but go on. Let me let me try to give voice to it before I forget what was in my mind. <laughs> Sorry, go. Social unrest. Look, if if it gets really bad, then all bets are off. And I don't want to speak to what that might look like. If we're talking about massive social unrest, I have a little bit of trouble envisioning that because maybe my imagination isn't strong enough. But if the virus is really getting bad, are people really going to be protesting side by side in close quarters? I don't know. Maybe they care so much about the cause. That I don't think it's protests. Do I think it's riots. But that's <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. But like, I don't know. Are are people going to riot in close quarters, or like, do you riot keeping six feet between you and the other person who's rioting? I mean, how does that even work? I think I'm not, I, I think I think the emotion of the riot takes over. I don't know. I'm I not. A, I'm ri- not a riotologist. I'm, I haven't rioted. I've been to a few punk before. rock shows. <laughs> so. <laughs> But look, yeah, but look, if it gets to that, if it gets to that point, then I'll reassess my position. But right now I'm actually encouraged by the very, the very vigorous democratic response from critics of Trump who called him out and took him to task. And I think to to Trump's credit, um, at least in the last couple of days, and I don't know how long it's going to last, but (laughs) he has actually seemed to have shifted his approach somewhat in saying, hey, this is very serious. He hasn't acknowledged that he was wrong, and that's probably expecting too much. But has he understood at some level that it's more serious than it was last week or the week before? Certainly. I think some of that is because the criticism was very strong from the media, from people in his own administration, from the CDC. And luckily, He hasn't been completely oblivious to that. So that, to me, actually is proof that a democratic system can actually actually work in these kinds of situations. Not perfectly. What I do worry about, though, is there could be a clamor for—and this is not the worst thing in the world. I mean, I'm a critic of it. Um, And even I am long—and I I said this, like, half-jokingly, but no, maybe—but also half-seriously on Twitter. You know, I'm longing for technocrats. I'm longing— for just basic competence, I'm an I'm a I'm an anti technocrat. I've been a vocal opponent of technocracy as a concept for a variety of reasons, and we've talked about some of them. But you know, if this leads to more people saying, "Hey, no, fuck it, we don't want, we just want technocrats. We don't care what their ideology is." For people who are managing a crisis. I'm actually, that wouldn't be the end of the world. But if that became the normal, the new normal, that's where I would be concerned because after the crisis, God willing, dissipates whenever it does and we go back to normal, whatever that looks like, I don't want us to have a particular emotional attachment to technocrats or technocracy because I don't think that they are appropriate for normal politics. Yeah, no, for sure. Um do you do you have any more um how do I put it uh the other thing that struck me as you were saying as you were saying about this this desire for return to normalcy uh you sounded a lot like um well like a like a never trumper like faced with the <laughs> the election of trump um do you think, do you think, uh, you know, I mean, I think you and I have agreed that there is no going back to, to the status quo ante before Trump. Um, I want the status quo ante before coronavirus. No, no, I so get like, it. I get it. But is there a status quo ante before coronavirus? How do you see that? Well, I mean, again, there's so many variables. It's so unknowable. But, you know, um, let's let's try and sort of maybe okay. in the last few minutes start try teasing, teasing what the implications of this well, might be. Because well, let me yeah. say, at, at the magazine, you know, at the American Interest, that's really what we're grappling with right now is trying to figure out what kind of pieces to, to solicit, how to even ask the right questions. That, you know, everyone's trying to figure this out in some sort of way. But I, I, I feel like our role is to is to think about this in with – an extra level of dispassion and at the same time 
some sort of analytical rigor and try and sort of imagine what what the implications are. So, okay, so I'll say something, but I I, I do want to. I'm curious what you would say to this. I know that you're sort of trying to work through these issues and your thoughts are somewhat unformed, but I I would be curious to hear what you think about. Is it like what does returning to normal look like a year from now or six months from now or in the summer or whatever, you know, or so on the never Trumper comparison, I would just I would just I I think it is important to say that this is not comparable because and I think that one thing that I hope will become more clear to people is like the Trump impeachment trial or thinking that Trump himself before coronavirus was an existential threat to everything we hold dear or Russiagate conspiracies or even the non-conspiracies or whatever we thought Trump actually did in real life factually. The smallness of some of those debates, I think, is at least to me rather apparent. And um, obviously I have a bias and I'm not um, a neutral observer because I was obviously um, a critic of the uh, some of the some of the over the what I think was some of the over t- over the top anti-Trump alarmism and that you know oh American democracy is dying and all of these things beforehand but it just the fact that we were willing to the the impeachment trial just seems silly sillier in retrospect. Like this should clarify the mind and folk, you know, we should have some perspective as to what's important. That was not existential. This is existential. People dying is existential. Um, so I just wanted to say that, but mm-hmm. like Demir, I'm curious, like on that, on that question, what are your thoughts? So I, a couple of minutes ago, I, I gave the, 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 really the darkest scenario of like, you know, uh, the danger, I think, is that that uh, we've we've uncorked with this. Um, and again, I'm not criticizing the quarantines or or anything because I I also full well understand. I'm not like that douchebag on CNBC who was saying sacrifice the old people and keep the economy going. That's all that matters. That's not what I'm saying at all. I don't know if you saw that clip of that guy. This is like about a week Wait, and a half ago. He was saying basically, you know, people are overreacting about the human toll. We have to save the economy. Old people be oh, damned. Oh, Rick Santelli on yeah, CNBC that's or whatever. That, yeah, this, yeah, shithead. <laughs> but like, yeah, that's not what I'm getting at. But I do think we've uncorked something that's potentially very big and could have far-reaching consequences that could do a lot of damage. However, on like the – on most days – in fact, um, when I'm not on Twitter too much and I'm not getting sucked into the the sort of quickening spiral of doom that is the news these days, um, I do think the United States is sort of uniquely well positioned to weather this, you know, sort of slow out of the gate with uh, an understaffed and incompetent president. Um, fine. Not going to deny any of that. Um, I, you know. It, it it potentially uh, could get out of hand here and we could have several Italys instead of one Italy. Um, but at the same time, there's a, there's a kind of flexibility and pragmatism to the United States that the very fact that we have uh, a, a bumbling federal government, um, I don't think we're that much worse off than any of the European countries at this point, even though we're a couple of days behind them. Uh you know, just take the testing thing, for example. This might be a conspiracy theory. I don't like really retweeting it because I have no idea. But it's interesting Tell because— it's a conspiracy but theory. It's, it's conspiracy theory because it's getting peddled on Twitter. and it. But most of the links are to journals, which I'm not competent to evaluate. So, again, I don't vouch for it. But I've seen a handful of these um, pointing to the fact that, in fact, uh, the testing protocol in China has offered a lot of false positives, for example. Mm. That the tests that the WHO is putting around that, you know, I think the Germans developed are going on, are perhaps faulty. So we're actually, we're operating off of really weird data. So, okay, this is not an excuse that, you know, we've bungled our testing. But like anything else, I think the the core strength of the United States is the ability to sort of improvise these things, to um, to have 
tons of different centers of activity, not directed from any one center, working on a problem from many, many different angles. Um, that's always been the strength, I think, of America on, on, on many different, call them uh, 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 vantage points, you know, whether it's sort of the political uh, element of being more flexible to addressing the needs of different people of a very vast and, uh, uh, you know, um, pluralistic, disparate country to, you know, I think just dealing with crisis. I mean, you know, even when you look at things like uh, uh, World War II and, and, you know, unprepared for war and all of a sudden, you know, barge in admittedly towards, you know, after uh, a lot of fighting has already happened, but, you know, to, to, uh, to tip the balance in a, in a truly massive national effort. I'm not saying that, that national mm-hmm. unity necessarily amounts and comes out of this. I'm not that optimistic. I think also all sorts of things have changed. And But at the same time, I, I, I do have a kind of sort of low-level optimism that keeps me from sinking into deep depths that about this kind of um, adaptability of America that I think – if any country is going to come out okay out of this, it's going to be the United States. The economy be damned. And, you know, with consequences that come out from that, uh, you know, and then the only other thing that I do think is going to be a consequence out of this uh, is that the, uh, you know, keeping aside the internal domestic politics, which I don't have a strong opinion on. I don't know how that works out in the United States. Uh, but I think conflict with China is now uh, even more inevitable than it was before. You were tweeting my colleague Andrew Michta's piece mm. about China and about, you know, calling shit shit when it is and, and uh, assigning blame. Uh, that's doing really well. Uh, mm. It's really hit a nerve. Um, I think that's right. I think that's one of the other things that's going to come out of this, especially in the United States, maybe not in Europe, maybe not okay. in some of these other countries. Demir, I'm so glad. Okay. This is, I love what you just said and just, Okay. I don't want to get emotional, mm. but one thing this has made me realize, or probably realize isn't the right word because I already knew it, I love this country so much. I love it even more now, and it bothered, look, she had some, there were some legitimate points in Applebaum's piece that how the coronavirus is showing how we are behind and we're completely ill-prepared and we're going to... We'll get so many things wrong. I actually, um, I don't want to say I'm completely the opposite. I do have some concerns, um, and she raises a few of them in her piece, which is worth reading as a different perspective than than my perspective or your perspective, Demir. But hearing you talk right now, it does comport with a lot of what I feel about where where we are as a country, as bung as bumbling a response um, as we had, there has been something very inspiring that because we don't rely on the state, because we don't look at the state as a savior, that local governments, state governments, individuals, civil society organizations, restaurants, whatever you, you name it, we do... Not all the time, but some of the time, we do what needs to be done in a time of crisis, and we try our best, at least some of the time, at least some of us, enough of us, I hope, to do what's right. And it allows for a kind of, as you said, adaptability that maybe not, we don't necessarily need the entire country to be on lockdown, and our federalist system allows different states and different localities to do different things depending on the local context. That, to me, seems like a promising model. I could be wrong. I could be wrong. We'll have to wait and see. But what I have seen, and this gets to a broader question of what does a pandemic bring out in us? Does it bring does it bring out the worst or the best or something in between? You know, I don't know. It's probably something in between. But what, what I have seen so far is, is something... Quite a bit of solidarity, quite a bit of fellow feeling. And I feel like what this this disease, this virus has threatened, it threatens 
me, it threatens my loved ones, um, especially my, you know, parents, older people we know, whatever. Um, and it threatens our economy, as we've talked about. It threatens, um, but it, it threatens our country. At some level, this is an attack on, um, it's an attack on America. And I want to defend my country and I want to do what I can to mitigate the spread of this virus because this is this is every this is at some level this is everything at some level our country our society our fellow citizens this is everything we have and all we have so this is you know um not to get again this is being a little bit over sentimental and because I'm a little bit emotional I'm kind of um uh perhaps descending into some overwrought rhetoric but um, I think we have seen signs of this also in Italy. Of course, Italy um, doesn't have the adaptability or the federalism necessary that we have. But you do. There is this sense that you know we do come together in democracies, you know, with our fellow citizens. And there, I don't know. I I think I haven't fully formed these ideas, but I think that there is a sentiment, and I I've tried to express the emotional tenor of what I'm feeling, even though it's not necessarily cogently realized as a set of specific or, or clear policy ideas. Hmm. Does tell me what you think about what I just said. I know there's a lot there and I know it's, yeah. Yeah. I, 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 uh, maybe, maybe, maybe it's on the level of democracy. I, I, I my instinct is that we'll fare better than, all other democracies. Oh, because, I agree. Because again, that's because we there is something, and, and this is just me being biased. I know you don't share the same sense of like American exceptionalism and nationalism or whatever you want to call it that I do, but I think it's moments like these that actually make me feel more American and more proud of what we have and how we're able to respond to crises for all our faults. There's that. There's that Bismarck quote, right? That that uh. That's uh, uh, it's it's where Walter gets his. <laughs> Wait, his, which Bismarck quote? Isn't that the the God has a? Is it fondness or special providence for fools, drunks, and the United States of America? Oh, I'm actually not familiar with that one. Yeah, yeah. no, that's the that's the famous one. That's where I think that's where special providence comes from. Oh, fact, okay, uh, okay. Um, right. So I don't know that it, that to me is is you know. Uh, if 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 there's an exceptionalism there, it's I, I like how how that ends up sort of phrasing it. It's that that it's a form of that. Um, what what uh, what Churchill also said, right? It's like always always count the Americans to try all the other options uh, before uh, coming to the correct one. Oh, that's that, yeah. My and, God, and, I, I and, just oh my God. And we so are- yeah. But anyway, so I, again, I, I think I think it's important for you and all our listeners, myself as well to, to, I don't know, at least keep that in mind. I think it's, it's the, the hardest part in um, maybe in all of this and maybe the hardest part of social isolation um, is that in a normal world, we get to sort of interact with others and that maybe blunts the, uh, the evil of the news onslaught to a certain extent, because you're not just trapped in it, but with your, if you're trapped by yourself and you're constantly staring at that damn screen and just reading other people, hyperventilating into a, into a social stream of shit. That is Twitter. Uh, I think that, 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 that's perverse. It's perverting. Um, so I, 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 I do think it's just important to, to take a step, step back and, and think about these sort of big, bigger picture things, lest you, uh, yeah, and maybe it gets back to the concentric circles of attachment and allegiance and loyalty or whatever word we want to use that, you know, at the end of the day, like our parents or family are the most important thing to us. And then, then, then our friends and then, and then our nation, like these are the things like what has come up when I think about what I've said tonight, I think that what has really, what stands out as important and vital are those things, family, friends, and America. Of course, the the world matters too. (laughs) Don't get me wrong, the world matters. But like what I, 
like what we're going to rally to and rally towards are are those things and then maybe this gets back to what you said at the beginning Demir that like what is our natural state what 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 are we authentically fighting for when we're fighting for something and i think it comes down to that family friends and nation mm. maybe maybe you know uh it's to save it for another time but let's just throw it out there uh even though we are running out of time shadi um and that's uh and that's the question that's the other sort of cleavage i see in how people are talking about this um i think maybe you and i agree that you know the concentric circles is the better way to think about it uh the flip side is people are saying well this clearly shows that you know we need to invest in more um supranational competencies that this is what pandemic shows us that hmm. that it's we interesting need, that we haven't come to that conclusion that tonight. we need that we need world government now they don't they don't actually i think the the people in uh that aren't stupid don't say that but but they do but there is that sort of sense that this proves well this finally proves that uh you know uh we are transcending these parochial things and you know finally you know the the best of the world can technocratically govern us and i i I, I still think mm. that's just nonsense. Um, well, I'm, yeah, I think we're on the same page. Yeah, yeah. When it comes to that, all right. Wow, that is not that is that has not been our response tonight no. at all. No, no, no. Anyway, Shadi, uh, this was fun, and so far as it can be fun. But good seeing you in person after after a couple of days. And uh, yeah, uh, and and I hope that our dear listeners uh, will stay safe yeah. in the coming days and weeks. Indeed. Best to all. Bye.